From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Some of my favorite recipes in this book came about on Saturdays like this one, when I had no plan for what I was going to cook, but knew that whatever it was, it would all start with the farmer's market shop. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine. And you just heard from today's guest, Carla Lolly Music. You're probably most likely to recognize Carla from her role as the food director at the Bon Appetit magazine Test Kitchen, where she stars in many of the Test Kitchen's popular videos. They've developed a cult following, and uh, last year alone, they had over 340 million views on the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen YouTube channel. Now, before joining Bon Appetit, Carla worked as a line cook and in other restaurant roles before becoming the first general manager manager of Shake Shack. And now we're here to talk with her about her first cookbook, Where Cooking Begins, which is a cookbook that makes shopping part of the recipes. We'll talk today about her approach to shopping, about how she develops recipes, about the role that Bon Appetit and the Test Kitchen play in the food industry, and about her influences as she was putting together her first cookbook. And we'll top it all off with our own version of Carla's famous YouTube series, Back to Back Chef, by playing our own little Back to Back Chef celebrity game. Let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Carla Lolly Music joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Carla. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're so glad to have you. So we're here to talk about your first cookbook, Where Cooking Begins which does not end with a question mark, but I feel like if it did, I would know what the answer would be, which is shopping. Yeah. Yeah. A big part of it for me is uh-huh. is the shopping and figuring out that, you know how people say, you know, if you start with great ingredients, you don't have right. to do anything to them. And everybody goes like, yeah, yes. totally. That's like the slow food way. Sure. But no one ever really ever talks about the ingredients. It's just like this assumption And when I shop, I have a lot of people who stop me and ask me what I'm going to do with stuff. Right. Like it might be an ingredient that's unfamiliar to them or that they're just curious about. And they see somebody else just like grabbing stuff. And it's like, what are you going to do with that? And I realized (laughs) there was like a lot there. Sure. Yeah. So you have a two pronged approach to shopping. Yeah. One half is sort of IRL and one half is sort of on that fancy fandangled internet thing. Yeah. So tell us about how you approach grocery shopping, which I think is sort of right at the forefront of your book and really leads people into how you approach cooking. Yeah. So you have to get the food into the house, right? That's yes. like a given. If you're a home cook, you want to cook at home. You've got to like cook with what you have. So over the years, I had, you know, kind of turned into someone who would do big grocery shops for everything, everything. Yeah. And then have enough food for like two weeks. And then I would get, get down to very low and then go to like very, very full again. Right. And I over time just started to shed that habit and I, realize that I really do like shopping for food. I don't really love shopping for clothes. Okay. Some people do. Yeah, I don't either. I hate <laughs> There's it. like people who are like, you don't like, and I'm like, no, I don't want to shop for shoes. That is not exciting to me. No. But um, shopping for food, I actually have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But I realize that the part that's the fun part is the, you know, the produce, the protein, the bread, the cheese, the things that like some days are really amazing, or sometimes there's a new thing that came in or Sometimes there's, you know, something that's seasonal that wasn't there the time before. That is fun for me. And that like makes me think about like what I want to do with that ingredient, whatever it is. Yeah. But picking out like boxes of kosher salt, like 
hey, ma'am, I love kosher salt. You cannot cook without it. But it doesn't really matter, I started to realize, which box I, you know, I I picked. I know the brand that I use and I need to have it. And so I started relying more on online shopping to fill in those things that like, I don't bring a lot of value to that equation, right? So I describe it as like everything that comes in a box, a bag, a jar, a can. So I started to divvy up my shopping and sort of making a priority on like the time that I want to spend shopping and putting stuff away should be on quality variable ingredients, like the things that actually get me excited about cooking and everything else I would prefer for it to just be there. Yeah. And so this strategy is like totally worked for me where I'm shopping a couple times a week instead of a couple times a month and filling in with online shopping, which now you don't have to live in a major urban center to enjoy this. Like Wegmans does this now. Yeah. Peapod. There's Amazon. There's in where I am in New York, there's Fresh Direct, but right. there's Instant Cart. Like whatever works for you. It's just like get the Goya beans home, but don't schlep them. Sure. I even noticed there's a shout out to my childhood grocery store. Oh, really? In the book, High V nice. in the Midwest. Have you ever actually been to a High V? No. Okay. No, I have not been to, I don't think I've I been mean, to a High V. It's like every other grocery store. But, but I really was doing, you know, I wanted to like do the work to make sure that I wasn't making an assumption that only applied to people on the coast. Right. You know, which is an abs- assumption that food editors make all the time. Yeah. And so in the research for online grocery store shopping, Hy-Vee came up and I was like, Hy-Vee. Yes. Uh, I, yeah. If you grow up in the Midwest, you know, Hy-Vee because they have this TV commercial with a jingle and it goes, there's a helpful smile in every aisle and oh. it just like cuts to all these employees in every aisle, just like turning and beaming at the camera. And it's just, it's See, burned in our memories. That's how I feel when I'm in any grocery store that isn't in New York City because the aisles are huge. Right. I get really thrilled. Yes, there is space. Yeah. But I'm also a person who when I'm traveling, I like to go to grocery stores. Me too. So when I travel for work or if I'm in a foreign country, I get such a kick out of that. I know not everybody does, but I'm like, Oh my God, these aisles. Yes. <laughs> this it's, is amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, you also said that you sometimes don't shop with a cart or a basket. Yeah. You just use your hands. Yep. Your That's arms. a strategy. Cause I do get like, I'll, I'll notice things and want to try new things or sure. see a bag of beans and be like, Ooh, beans. I maybe I'm low on beans. And then, you know, it's just like impulse shopping. So I make a point to go into stores and not grab the cart or the basket, or now they have the little rolly baskets. Oh yeah. Uh huh. You drag them behind you. Exactly. I can sort of guarantee because I can only buy as much as I can hold that I'm not going to end up with more items than, um, will disqualify me for the express line. Okay. And then I don't end up like buying unnecessary items that maybe are like less expensive or that I don't necessarily need in that moment. You know, inevitably there will be someone in the store will come up and be like, ma'am, you know, these days it's ma'am, ma'am, can I get you a cart? And I'm like, no, no, this is like part of my whole plan (laughs) here. Because if you give me a cart, I'm going to fill it to the brim. Right. Yeah. And then I'll be in here for another 20 minutes and it'll take longer to check out and longer to put everything away. Yeah. I'll spend more money. So yeah. Get all home. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you used to shop, as you noted, like every couple of weeks or every week and buy a lot of things. Did you previously dread grocery shopping at any point? No, I always sort of 
looked at it as a chore that really gives back. You know, it's like one of those chores that you don't, it's not like no one notices when you sweep out the gutter. It's like when you go to shop for food, that means you come home and you get to cook. Right. But I did start to realize that I was losing really giant chunks of time in the shopping, the coming home, the unpacking, putting everything away. And by the time I would get done, I just didn't feel like cooking or eating at all. I was like so sick of sort of being on this massive chore, you know, where like you check out when the cart is completely full, when your shopping cart is full to the brim. And then there would be anxiety about like using and eating everything up before the perishables went bad because that really bothered me. And so I would shop that would take a certain amount of time. Getting everything put away would take a certain amount of time. And then making sure that I did kind of like giant meal batching, that would take many, many hours. And then I realized like I have a career and I, you know, have kids and I have a kind of a busy life. And I was spending kind of my whole weekends when I could have been reconnecting with my family. I was spending, you know, shopping, cooking, feeding and storing. Right. Um, And it just kind of did become a drag. Like I didn't want, I wanted to be... I wanted to enjoy my time. It was really a half of it was about getting my time back. So beyond teaching people how to shop effectively, which I think you do an excellent job of in this book, you also distill sort of your approach to cooking into six methods. So you you write about sautéing, pan roasting, steaming, boiling and simmering, which are are one, confine and slow roasting. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of the six? What's your go-to? I'm a big slow roaster. I also love, it's kind of like the fast and the slow, right? So I think I love sauteed things where you're using a saute pan, you never turn the oven on. It's very quick, but you can still go in stages. If you have multiple ingredients that have different cook times, Right, you can saute all of them and then kind of bring them together at the end. And then I love um, slow roasting because it works equally well on fish, meat, or vegetables. Right. And kind of renders things into this like very concentrated, very delicious. It takes tough things and makes them tender. Sure. Really great for large cuts. I do a lot of like slow roasting when I'm sleeping. Okay. One of my, yeah. You do. People get freaked out that I leave the oven on I'm overnight. I'm freaked out by it. <laughs> but what's the difference between it being on overnight and it being on for like six hours in the day? I feel like I'm alert and present to like the potential like, of a fire. I, like don't, I don't know. That's just my the pilot switches back on. A lot of people have had this reaction when I like, yeah. I comfy overnight too. Sure. And people are like, you're crazy. I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Should I be more scared? Yeah. Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not basing this in any fact or reality, right. but like I, I have done it once or twice. I think I did like an 18 hour pork shoulder. Yeah. In, in roasted in beer. Ooh. Um, that's delicious. It's a food 52 recipe. I love nice. it. Um, 18 hours. Was, I think it yeah, was you like have 18 to hours and you have point. to put it in. <laughs> yeah. And like go to bed, but I was so anxious doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I just it, wake up and like the whole house smells like beef. And I'm like, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's like that scene in the office with Michael Scott when he puts the bacon in the George Foreman grill before oh, yeah. he goes to bed. So he wakes up to the smell of bacon. <laughs> right. But yours does sound like a much safer <laughs> way. I like those two methods. I realized the other day that, um, you know, braising isn't in there. And I, I definitely, um, thought about braising as one of the key techniques, but that whole section of the book is also about using olive oil, salt, pepper, and lemon, plus whatever ingredient you've just bought or decided to 
use and brazing like is a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. So I had to drop brazing just cause it didn't fit okay. in. But part of that for me is like not having a recipe at all and actually just learning instinctively how to cook yeah. using a method and an ingredient that could be very singular. So a lot of the meals that I cook are, you know, at least one or two of the dishes on the table are, are seasoned with salt and pepper yeah. and olive oil. And like That's things it? are really good like that. Uh-huh. You know, it doesn't need that much more. I think that home cooks overcomplicate and recipe writers overcomplicate what it takes to make something taste good. And that if you don't add three different spices or have combine, you know, several different ingredients in a dish that somehow it's going to be boring. It's, it's not. Yeah. And your book is divided in this way that you talk about your approach to shopping, your approach to cooking. You talk about these six methods that are sort of your tried and true methods at the beginning and then offer recipes in the second half of the book with lots of options for swapping things in and substituting. But I want to, wanted to ask you if you knew that would be sort of the angle and the approach you were going to take when you went into writing this book. I think yours is one of a few sort of like how to cook type mm-hmm. books that have we've seen lately and have done really well. Obviously, Samin Nostrat's Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat has gotten a lot of attention and sort yeah. of has a similar approach, I think, as yours of like, let's talk about how we do things in the kitchen. And then I'll give you some ideas for how you can implement that. Yeah, totally. Um, I think at the beginning, I'm trying to think the subs and the swaps wasn't a really central conceit at the very beginning of the recipe and the the book writing. Okay. I knew that in the recipe pages, I wanted to tie together the idea of dividing up your shopping between going out to the market and having something just come to your house. Right. So I knew that that element, like somehow I wanted to represent on the page. Um, and so the, we have, you know, the book has a standard list of ingredients, but also at the top of the page, you can just sort of scan for like the things that hopefully you just get in the habit of already having. Sure. You know, like those pantry items, like rice and grains and the salt and the oil and the vinegar and the condiments, that stuff. Right. And then you're filling in with like the thing that you picked up in person without a shopping cart. Right. Yes. <laughs> Balancing <laughs> it under, under your chin, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, at a certain point, I think I was in recipe development and there were dishes that I had conceived for the recipe section or things that I had made before. And I was really honest with myself. Like I've cooked my mom's version of pasta fagioli like a hundred million times. Uh-huh. It's a rough estimate. Yeah, right. More or less. Yeah. yeah. And like sometimes I don't have celery. Sometimes I have an onion. Sometimes uh-huh. I have leeks. Sometimes I have like a bunch of carrots and I thought I had garlic, but I didn't. And if I'm being honest, like I most of the time just kind of carry on. You know what I yeah. mean? And like most of the time it's fine. So when I was in recipe development and I thought I had an ingredient that maybe it turns out I didn't have, I didn't go to the store wedded to that idea from the beginning. Right. And then I realized like, well, wait, if I'm not going to go out now for turmeric, which I thought I had, but I don't, then why would I ask anybody else to do that? So that's where the idea of making the substitutions like more of an integral part of the recipe came to be. I also know from being at Bon Appetit for seven years and getting feedback from readers, readers really do and home cooks really do like cook what they like, you know? And there are recipe followers who get very nervous about making any changes. Yeah. And we ask each other all the times when we're in recipe development, like, well, how important is that like half teaspoon of oregano? 
And when you really drill down on it, it's like, it's fine. You can leave it out, you know? And I wanted people, especially also with reporting a lot of recipes with chefs. Sometimes you ask a chef like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, how can you do it that way? And they're like, well... This is leftover from when we used to have a different cat setup and we had to like do all the prep and then do the other thing later. And we were in two locations and we didn't. And you're like, Oh, so it actually like doesn't matter at all. Right. It's just the way you do it. Right. It's a habit. I really realized that like that is touching on people's instincts and like supporting people's desire to like change it up because that's how you make a dish your own. So I hope that people cook the recipe the way I wrote it the first couple of times, if that's the kind of cook they are. And then the third time, like, kind of know you know where you're going and you might make a diversion Mm -hmm. and like that's when a dish really becomes your own sure yeah i wanted to ask you about that too because you you worked as a line cook Mm -hmm. you you were the first i love this fact about you you were the first general (laughs) manager of shake shack true um which i love shake shack actually shake shack no substitutions like it's not like when you're making um shack sauce you can decide like to leave out the pickled brine that day no No. i mean it's just that it (laughs) is perfection yeah yeah Yeah. but you come from that background of working in restaurants and the food industry and now you've spent quite a while at bon appetit in the test kitchen you're the food director you mentioned that you have learned some of what home cooks are worried about in Mm -hmm. terms of like leaving out some oregano are there other things you've sort of learned in your job now at Bon Appetit that have influenced how you put together this book, which I think is mostly focused for home cooks. Yeah, there were two other things that were important to me and guided sort of framed a lot of the how I wanted the recipes to be. I think that you can introduce a new flavor, a new ingredient to people who might not have been exposed to it before as long as you keep all of the technique and method really straightforward. Okay. If you want to teach somebody a new technique and a new method, then the ingredients can't also be like, whoa, what is that? Sure. So I felt like that kept me from combining difficult, challenging methods with like new and unusual, maybe have to make a special trip ingredients. Right. Because when you put those two things together, people are like, what kind that that's when we get the like really bon appetit we just get a, that's the comment that like leads off the like the like do you really expect so it's like the really bon appetit and and i feel like that's that's pretty that's true in like a, a learning kind of way it's like mm-hmm. it's just too much you know you got to keep something simple yeah You've also, I think, sort of become a celebrity in your own right for home cooks. And I mean, you, I will say you and the entire staff of the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. Like there are think pieces and like love letters that are just like penned across the internet. And there's a vulture piece that I'm sure you saw that's like all about how wonderful you and your your video content, I want to say YouTube, mm-hmm. but I, it, it exists elsewhere, I know, on Facebook and right. whatnot, how compelling it is for home cooks. What role do you think that like the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen plays in educating home cooks today? I mean, YouTube's amazing. Yeah, and it's crazy. And having a channel on YouTube that we have 3 million something subscribers has given me feedback in a way that even though the magazine reached a lot of people you just get this like very direct feedback and interaction from people. Social media also has been like so dynamic and like starting conversations with people. And um, I know like personally how much 
information and inspiration I get from being in the kitchen. So I think what we managed to do with the videos was like capture something that happens there naturally every day, which is it really is a group of people who are collaborating and spitballing and like throwing ideas off of each other and tasting each other's food and having strong opinions. Like I'm lucky enough to work in a place where people are passionate about food and, and not shy about what they think and honest with each other. And I think the videos, the, the direction of the videos was to like, just be yourself and so when we all sort of got used to that, there were cameras around all the time yeah. and just sort of were being as normal as like possible. <laughs> um, and that's why I think people connected with it because we're being pretty much our genuine selves. Yeah. Maybe turned up a little bit. I read that Adam Rappaport gave you similar advice on writing your, I think specifically for writing your cookbook to write like you talk. That was actually, yes, he definitely was in my head when I was writing the book, but he, um, that was one of the first like big feature stories I wrote. Okay. Um, was this story about, uh, that we went to Ralph Lauren's ranch and like, it was really a recipe story, but his ranch is so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The note that he gave me was like, just talk in your normal voice, basically. Mm-hmm. He was like, you're a pretty good talker. Just write the way you talk. Yeah. And I was like, what? Like, I thought you have to write like a writer. Because I didn't go to journalism school and I wasn't, you know, I didn't take writing and journalism classes. And sure. and so I think when I started writing for the magazine, I was like, thought there was some voice you had to be in, you right. know? And so that was a good note. Just like, write like you talk. And I was like, well, that's easy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could do that. the talking thing I could do. <laughs> right. Um, but it helped me a lot. And I think that's when people say, like, you have to find your voice, you know? Sure. Which I also thought was, like, some other thing outside of me that I was going to, like, find someday, right. you know? Yeah, exactly. And I was like, no, just, like, be normal. The voice is within. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's already there. <laughs> yeah. And that helped, too, with video a lot. Because as soon as someone's putting a... You know, even though it's people, my people I work with and see all the time on the video team, somebody sets up a camera and somebody's standing there and they're looking at you and you have to look in the lens. Like you don't act normal. It's like when someone takes your picture with their phone, you like make a crazy, you do your photo face. Right. Yes. (laughs) It's true. Mm -hmm. So I know your mother was a great, is a great cook, was a great cook and also worked in publishing. Did you grow up with a lot of exposure to cookbooks as a kid? Yeah. She, my mom, um, is a, um, still an amazing cook and she was a cookbook editor. So she was a food writer and journalist. And then moved into cookbook editing. She also wrote some cookbooks. Her chicken salad cookbook is legendary. Yes. Um, she wrote a stale bread cookbook, which like, it's just funny looking back on it now when my mom was working on her books and we were like all eating chicken for dinner every night for (laughs) like three months. So there were cookbooks around all the time. She was friends with cookbook authors and talked about recipe writing a lot, but I didn't, I didn't really, that was like her. It was a part of her that I always very closely associated with her, but I wasn't like pouring over the cookbooks with her and choosing dishes and doing stuff like that. It wasn't until way later that I was like, oh, I turned into my mom. Cool. Okay. <laughs> we all do in some <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah. Um, it's inevitable. I thought when I like went to become a line cook and I was doing this like hardcore nitty gritty, like down in the dread, you know, down in the dungeon with the other cooks, right. like working 16 hours a day. I was like, I'm so di- like my parents' path was so different than this, you know? And I'm like hardcore and I'm going to own a restaurant. And, yeah. um, it's just funny how it like came back around. Yeah. Are there particular cookbooks that have played a role in your life? I know I pulled Deborah yeah, Madison's out on here. our table here because I know you've said that has been a, 
a book that you've held on to for a long time? Yeah, Are definitely. there other works or authors that have really um, influenced you? Yeah, definitely. I'm trying to... There's a, a lot of books that I turn to over and over in my office. It's like my home cookbook library uh-huh. is a little bit more reflects what I was going through as a line cook. Like I okay. have the French laundry book and like the Nobu book and uh-huh. French cheeses of the world. And, yes. you know, it was like a little bit more sort of emulating like chefs. I love the research books that are written by Elizabeth Schneider, um, Uncommon Fruits and Vegetables, Uh and another one that's like Vegetables from A to Z. I really love books that are written, and these are books that like don't have photos and pictures in them. You know, like vegetarian cooking for everyone is very text heavy and dense and has like illustrations and like a few photos. And there are books that I would bring into bed with me and read like really read at night because the, there was so much information. Yeah. And that was um one of the things about vegetarian cooking for everyone, which she had her 20th anniversary, yeah. right? And they did a, a reissue. Ago, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. A few years. I think it's yeah. right there, the new vegetarian cooking, right. I think. And it made me realize that there's advice in that book that I've been following, you know, that I internalized like 20 years ago. I learned from her to when you get the when you get your bunches of greens home from the market to snip the rubber bands that that hold the stems together uh-huh. because that like keeps everything in a really tight bundle and then moisture traps in between the stems and then if there's too much moisture then you get like wilting and rotting right and like that made so much sense to me in, intellectually then even though I had never followed the advice so that I've done that ever since. And I'm like, wow, I've been doing that for 20 years because of this book, you know, like she changed my life. Yeah. You said pictures are not super important to you in a cookbook. What do you look for in a good cookbook? Well, it's funny that I say that because I insisted that every recipe in my book have a photo. Well, they are beautiful photos. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But I also think that cooks today, especially because of how much we rely on um, the internet and digital versions of the recipes. Sure. If there isn't a photo, like you're just not going to make that recipe. So I felt like if I put a recipe in the book that didn't have a photo, it would be a kind of a waste of a recipe. I think the cookbooks where the recipes really work. And I know that sounds like something that we should all take for granted, but I also know from cooking from a lot of cookbooks that you can't. Um, And I think that's why some people don't trust cookbooks or recipes in general and might look at recipes just to get ideas and then kind of like do, do their own thing. Sure. And I love looking through recipes just to get new ideas, different new flavor combinations and visually too from working in food media for so long, you kind of like get used to a style of photography or there's a lot of things that come around over and over and over again. Like, you know, even like what's a different way to shoot a stack of pancakes. Yeah. That's like cool or fun or is just a different style. So I look through cookbooks a lot to just see like to get a visual inspiration of how to, to see a dish in a different way. And then I really respond to and respect cookbook authors who have a strong point of view, you know, personal story narrative, yeah, and like knowing what they're talking about. Right. I like the old school. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. Um, Well, we always end with a little game. Okay. So uh, I thought it would be fun to riff on, we alluded to your YouTube celebrity status. (laughs) I'm like, no one can see that when you say that, I give you a look like, oh God. (laughs) Sorry. um, An exaggeration, but Okay. 
we'll we'll go with it yeah. because you host a show from the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen yep. called Back to Back Chef yep. where you cook back to back with celebrities. So for folks who haven't seen it, you are standing back to back. The other person, the celebrity, cannot see what you're doing, but you're cooking the same recipe yeah. and you're coaching them and guiding them. And yeah, they're and hilarious. I can't see what they're doing. That's right. Which yeah, is because like, sometimes they're so off. They're, and I sometimes it just gets really quiet. Yeah. I can't hear anything. <laughs> I can't see anything. I'm like, what is happening? I know. The Did Ellie Cumber episode yeah. just like really got me. <laughs> well, sometimes, I mean, even when we wrap, like... I haven't seen, like, I see their finished dish right. because we turn around and do like the big reveal. Right. But I still don't know what they've done. So sometimes I watch the finished cut and I'm like, oh my God, that's hilarious. Yeah. Like, it is had so funny. no idea. And you made someone, I can't remember who you made someone open a coconut. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Natalie Portman. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was fun. So I thought we'd play a little back to back chef okay. song spine edition game. We have a little stack of blue cards in front of you that we use sometimes. These are called our secret ingredient cards. We didn't invent these. So okay. I'm not taking credit for these. Okay. Um, but there's fun little ingredients in there. So I thought we'd play a game where I, and I used, I wanted to be fair. So I used a random celebrity picker website to give me a few celebrity names. Oh, wow. I'm going to give you a name. Okay. You're going to draw a secret ingredient. And then I want to pretend like we're doing a back-to-back episode and you can tell us what you would prepare. Okay. Alongside or back-to-back with this celebrity. Okay, great. So I hope I know the celebrities. I know. I think <laughs> I, I weeded a couple out because I didn't know a few and I'm not very in touch with my pop culture either. So I think we'll be good. Let's start with Meryl Streep. Oh. And let's draw a secret ingredient Ooh, from Meryl Streep. She'd be a fun Street. one to get Wouldn't on back to back. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, secret ingredient, dashi. Okay. So what are you going to make with Meryl Streep coaching her using dashi? Okay. So Meryl Streep. Yes. <laughs> I want you to grab the pot. You have kind of a clearish but dark brown liquid. That's your dashi. Okay. You're going to pour that into the bottom of the pot. Just pour it into the pot. Okay. It's going to get to the bottom. Yep. <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to put that over um, enough heat to get it to simmer and then st- set a steaming basket on top of that. And um, then I would make her fillet a fish and get a nice fillet of like black bass or sure. something like that. Okay. Slice some ginger, put it underneath, lay the bass on top of the ginger, season it, close it, and then we would have dashi steamed fish. And we could use the steaming liquid as a sauce. I love it. Okay. I'm sure Meryl would love it too. I'm sure she would too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Let's um draw an ingredient for Drake. Oh, okay. <laughs> back to back with Drake. Is it like, yeah, it's something Canadian. Ooh, secret ingredient liver. Oh, okay. See, this is one of the few things I don't care for at all. Really? Yeah. And I've really tried to get over all of my food aversions because like I just can't go through life like this. Yeah. And chicken liver is one of the ones that I'm, I know that the secret to fixing them is to continue to expose yourself over time. Right. Till you like learn to like it. Um, I'm still working on okay. it. But what if you're, it was beef liver? I mean, it could totally be beef yeah. liver. That's it's, like it's a thing. It's not specific. It's any kind of liver. Um, I, I feel like Drake probably loves liver. I feel like Drake likes foie gras. Yeah. Which is liver. Right. Right? Yeah. So let's is. do a foie gras, a seared foie gras okay. steak. Okay. So the hard part of this will be, um, instructing Drake to pull the lobes of the foie gras apart. Sure. Which they ha- kind of have a natural seam, 
but foie gras feels like really cold butter. So the more you handle it, it's going to start to melt. So we have to do it like kind of quickly. Yeah. And pulling it apart and then using tweezers, take out any, um, veins. This would be a fun one to actually do. Yeah. Cause it, the more people get creeped out. Right. Yeah. Better, I almost made poor Troy Savon almost threw up. I made him butcher yeah. a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, so then, um, once we get those pulled apart, you tease around, you pull out your veins, your tweezers, Mm -hmm. and then we are going to cut this into like an inch and a half thick lobe steak and see we're going to go back to like, yeah, we're going back to like 2000, 2001, little sour cherry pan sauce. Yep. Gastrique maybe. Yep. Sear that up. Quagra is still Sounds good. awesome. Yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> okay, we have two more. Secret ingredient from Meghan Markle. Oh, she's expecting. She's, she is. I feel like so, I know that she's going to have the baby soon because I just keep seeing headlines like, like any all day you now, need right? to know. Yeah, By guess, the time this episode airs, she'll probably have had the baby. Had I mean, I don't know. Baby. It seems like any day. So. Well, she has, to ha- she has to make eel. She sure does. <laughs> <laughs> so this would be a really intense one to do. Yeah. I've never done it, but I've seen, I've watched it done many times. So, um, is she a duchess or a princess? I think she's a duchess. Okay, fine. But you, I don't, I'm going to go with that. what you said. <laughs> okay. So, um, I'm going to have to ask the duchess to take like a, a large spike. And put it behind the, the, right behind the, you know, the eye line of the eel. Yeah. And we're just going to hammer it into a cutting board. The more visual, the better. Yeah. So we have to like spike it. I can picture it. And then we have to score it and pull the skin off. Yep. Like shedding a, shedding a snake. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Super intense. I think she'd be up for it. I think she's a good sport. She is. Yeah. And she worked on a cookbook recently. Oh, so she did? there you go. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. She did a cookbook with refugees. Oh, great. She did the foreword or something. Okay. So yeah, I don't know once you've, I think there's bones that need to be deal, dealt with. Are Some there? of the back to backs okay. for me, like even cracking the coconut with Natalie Portman, I had never actually cracked the coconut. Really? Before. Okay. Yeah. You seemed like so a pro. Two, well, two days before I was like, <laughs> we're going to do some practice. Yeah. And I learned how to do it. And then, so when I was teaching her, it's kind of like, no, you don't understand. Like I <laughs> also have never done this. Right. It's all about that confidence. And we figured though. it out. What okay. else can you do with the eel? You have to yeah. make that sweet sauce in the end. I mean, that's the only way to enjoy eel, right? I think so. More or less. Personally, yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Last one. Um, a food, a food celebrity, okay. I guess we could say Chrissy Teigen. Oh, great. Book author. Would love to cook with yes. Chrissy. <gasps> this is almost one that I've done and I don't think we're going to do it. Okay. But it's sea urchin. Oh, yeah. Which, um, they have to be the California sea urchin because the main ones are so small that it's really hard to do this. Okay. But, you know, sea urchins are in the sponge family. They're in the same family as starfish. Oh, I didn't know that. And sea cucumbers. Okay. They're, um, weird. They have like that weird, soft, like beaky mouth on top. Yeah. And they're star shaped. So when you get them open, it has five lobes which okay. is like the same as the starfish okay okay so what christy Teigen has to do she might want to wear protective gloves yeah um she might want to wear goggles yeah she's fine i'm sure she's, she's fine, fine with, with that. that yeah so um there's a couple different ways to do it but i've found that the easiest way is you have to take you have to 
put the sea urchin on your counter, yeah. your work surface. Mm-hmm. And then with very sharp shears, you have to go in and actually cut around. You'll, you can see on the top of the urchin, there's like a little circle and then it's like, you know, like organy and pushy and soft right. and weird. And you have to cut around the edge of that and actually pull it out. And then once you take that out and it's really sl- sludgy and g- pretty oogie woogie. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, um, pour out all the liquid, which is this like, brownish brackish like iodiney liquid so already you're like pretty grossed out right and then taking um kind of the the butt of a chef's knife like from where the that straight edge comes down from the handle and goes into the blade yeah kind of working around and crack like hitting the open edge pretty hard and then you can use your hands and pull it open from the this opening that you made when you cut out the mouth and then inside, then you get to the good stuff. Yeah, but those when we get uni, like if you have uni in a sushi restaurant, or when if you buy it, if you've ever bought it at like a Japanese market, right? And it's in that beautiful little wooden tray. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like that when you pull it out of the <laughs> inside of the shell. Sure. So the lobes are very intact and they want to stay together kind of like the yolk of an egg like they have a membrane around them but then you have to get rid of that whole membrane so then they get soaked in really cold salt water and then you're kind of pulling that stuff off i mean it takes a minute yeah and it's kind of like the shopping it's like by the time you get done with it you're like i'm not actually not hungry anymore right yeah and we've prepped I won't tell you who the people were because they both canceled at the very last minute, but I've prepped for sea urchin episodes two times. Really? And the second time I did it, we had, I had already practiced, but we had bought, it was so last minute that the food stylist Rhoda had already bought like two dozen sea urchin when we got the cancellation. So I was like, I'm going to make, I'll prep it up for the test kitchen and we'll just have like buttered bread and sea urchin and then i spent like an hour and 20 minutes taking apart all these sea urchin and by the end i was like enjoy and yeah. goodbye <laughs> yeah not interested yeah <laughs> and so i think that after that one i was like yeah i'm not doing that yeah. episode well i don't know if chrissy teigen's listening Chris- and she wants to do sea urchin with you would you do it of course okay i mean all if right. chrissy teigen wanted to make like quesadillas <laughs> i think we would figure out a way to do that yeah. but it's hard with guests who are really actually really good cooks like the episodes are the most fun when the other person has like never seen a stand sure. before like you just had anthony from queer eye and i was like, like clearly can cook yeah it was just a couple people making cooking together right you know what i mean we could have <laughs> yeah. been like on the phone yeah. basically uh-huh. but i don't know if you watched the one that i did with shangela who no, um I didn't. so shangela was a rupaul i don't remember what her original season was but okay. she was also in um a star is born she okay. runs the bar that the drag bar where gaga does her first yep uh-huh anyway she like really couldn't cook and we made churros together okay and it was hilarious <laughs> i have to see this yeah it was re- and those are like so fun because i get thrown for so many loops like yeah. where we're spending 10 minutes talking about how to lift the top of the stand mixer up to fit the attachment on. Sure. Something just that feels so picking, natural to you. She just kept picking the whole stand mixer up. Right. <laughs> and I, she was like, okay, I'm holding it. It's up. And I'm like, what is happening? Like, so, and then, then, you know, I practice. Right. So then when I get someone who's like this, I didn't practice for this. Right. I didn't practice for like lift the top of the, ha- the yeah, stand mixer. Her- Flip the lever, go, yeah. So those wow. just get me flustered. Then we're both flustered. Yeah, those are those are the ones that are really fun. Well, it makes great content. Yeah. Everyone should watch it. And then at the end, you get donuts. So oh, yeah, yeah. it works well, out. Of course. I mean, yeah. if the episode if is churros, <laughs> yeah, not always. 
<laughs> no, the end of the sea urchin episode. It's just donuts, like donut holes. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want to eat the sea urchin anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this was so fun. Thank you so much, Carla. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes like Carla Lolly Music's pan-fried chicken thighs with Italian salsa. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Happy listener, I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>